0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. It says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they have longed for you. And pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And may God bless the reading of his word.
0: Thank you. Rick, let's pray together. Father, we are gathered around this text of scripture today. Because we want to hear from you and we want to hear from you because we want to know you more and love you more and be more conformed to your image so please lord grant our longing and glorify your name it's in jesus name we pray amen this morning, I'll be sharing part two of a two part message that we started last week that is entitled The Joy of Generous Giving. We are looking at this subject in conjunction with our church's season of giving, as we're calling it, for church renovations. Um, we purchased this building almost two years ago, actually, and began to occupy it last November. Uh, But as you can see, especially if you've been downstairs, there are still quite a bit of things that remain to be done. Much of the building is still only in a semi-usable condition, and we would like to change that. We would like to make this building into a place that is truly comfortable and welcoming, and that will be a powerful tool for gospel ministry and really all kinds of different ministries in and through our church for years to come. Uh, However, of course, uh, these renovations will cost a significant amount of money, and so we're doing this season of giving in order to ask the people of our church uh, to prayerfully consider what the Lord would have them contribute. And yet the purpose of these two messages from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 isn't just to highlight this season of giving, but also to help disciples the people of our church, especially those who are younger in the faith, in this very important aspect of the Christian life, which is how to relate to money and how to handle money in a way that glorifies God. And as I've been thinking about this subject of handling money in a God-pleasing way these past few weeks, the Lord's really impressed on my heart the need for our thinking uh, in this area to be shaped not by the prevailing norms of contemporary society, but rather by the timeless truths of God's Word. Now, unfortunately, uh, the surrounding culture has a way of relentlessly pressing us into its mold. Uh, One aspect of that mold, in many cases— is to view money as a key validation of our personal worth and to find our significance in our wealth. For example, how many of the purchases that we as a society, American society as a whole, how many of the purchases that we make are driven in large part by a desire to signal to others how wealthy we are? And the kinds of things that we can, supposedly afford. From the cars we drive to the clothes we wear. So much of it is viewed as desirable because of the message it sends. (laughs) The message that we're wealthy. Uh, You may have seen the news story that came out a couple of weeks ago about a a company that's basically selling an $1,800 trash bag. Um, This online luxury retailer called Balenciaga is uh, selling what it calls a trash pouch that's made of calfskin leather and comes in several colors that you can see up there, blue and black and yellow and white. Now, why would any sane person uh, purchase an $1,800 glorified trash bag? Well, keep in mind that this trash pouch does feature Balenciaga's logo, uh, presumably so that your elite influencer friends can be reminded of the kinds of items you're able to afford. Now, thankfully, I haven't seen anyone in our church uh, carrying around uh, a trash bag as an accessory, uh, though if you would like one, I think we do have a few in the closet back there. We'd be glad to to let you have. Um, But It's nevertheless very easy for us to fall into this mentality of seeking to find our significance in our wealth. So don't think you're immune to this just because you've never shopped at Balenciaga. And yet maybe you're here this morning and uh, can honestly say that you don't care much at all about how wealthy other people perceive you to be. Maybe you Drive a vehicle that's 15 years old and do a lot of your clothes shopping at Walmart and really have no interest in appearing wealthy. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Now, that's good, but you may fall into another common error related to money, and that is to look to money as your source of security. Even though you may not find your significance in money, you may be tempted to find your security in money. So instead of looking to God to take care of you and to provide for your needs, your confidence is ultimately in the money in your bank account or 401k or whatever it is. Perhaps your unspoken mentality, uh, patterned after Psalm 23, which many of you May recognize that as the, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, that psalm. But perhaps your unspoken mentality is money is my shepherd. I shall not want. It allows me to lie down in my wonderful temperpedic. It leads me to acquire waterfront property besides some nice still waters. And as long as I manage to hang on to it, it will restore my soul. It leads me in paths of prosperity. For my own sake, even though I walk through the valley of an uncertain economy, I will fear no evil, for my money is with me. Its interest and its dividends, they comfort me. My money prepares a table before me in the presence of my envious neighbors. It anoints my life with such pleasant luxuries, my 401k overflows." Surely prosperity and security shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in a really nice house forever. Yeah. Now, obviously, that little parody I wrote uh, might be a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, nevertheless, it represents the sort of mentality that many of us, and I'll say myself included, are tempted to have with regard to money, to look to money as our source of security instead of looking to God. And so those are the two temptations, right? Looking to money as our source of significance and looking to money as our source of security. And our main passage this morning of 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15, will address both of those temptations and will do so by turning our attention toward God as our source of both significance and security. And as we find our significance and security in God, well, that enables us to hold the earthly blessings he's given us with open hands and, as we see it displayed, to experience the joy of generous giving. And uh, that's the main idea of this passage, uh, just as it was our main idea last week, uh, this week being part two of that message. God invites us to experience the joy of generous giving giving. And in addition to the uh, six principles for giving that we looked at last week from 2 Corinthians 8, we find an additional four principles here in 2 Corinthians 9. If you were here last week, you may remember that Paul's writing this to the church of Corinth in order to encourage them to contribute generously uh, to the offering he's taking up for the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. And he emphasizes these four principles in chapter 9. First, bountiful sowing results in bountiful reaping. Bountiful sowing results in bountiful reaping. Paul writes in verse 6 The point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, even if you're not a farmer, you can still appreciate this general principle of agriculture. Right? It's pretty basic. Sowing less seed will result in a lesser harvest, while sowing more seed will result in a greater harvest. The harvest you reap is directly related to the amount of seed you sow. Now, one question that often arises with this verse is the question of whether Paul's referring to a material harvest or simply to a spiritual harvest? Was he telling the Corinthians that if they gave generously to this offering, that they could expect material blessings as a result? Or is it best to understand this uh, exclusively as a reference, or even primarily as a reference to spiritual blessings? And that's a great question. Um, I believe the answer um, in the verse itself and the context clearly lead us to expect both. There's no question that spiritual blessings are included, but I believe that Paul is also referring to material blessings as well. And that interpretation is supported by many commentators, including historic commentators like John Calvin, as well as contemporary commentators like John MacArthur. The harvest here is most naturally understood to be of the same nature as the seed. So if I plant tomato seeds, let's say, I don't expect a harvest of green beans. I expect a harvest of tomatoes. Similarly, the most natural expectation for sowing material blessings is to reap blessings of that same nature. We also find support for this interpretation in the context. Looking ahead to verse 11... Paul says to these generous givers, You will be enriched in every way. Every way, right? That includes both spiritual enrichment and material enrichment. In addition, look with me at Proverbs 11 24 and 25. It says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Now, both of these verses in Proverbs seem to be pretty clear uh, references to material wealth. Now, are there exceptions to this? Yes. (laughs) One fundamental rule for interpreting Proverbs is that a proverb isn't a promise. It's a general principle that's true most of the time, but not a promise. That's true all the time. And uh, I believe that's the way we should understand Paul's writings back in our main passage in verse six as well. This teaching that bountiful sowing results in bountiful reaping, is best understood as a general principle rather than as a promise, at least as it relates to material wealth. So I'm sure that if you looked hard enough, you could find Christians who have given generously to others and still had some kind of financial misfortune, like maybe their their transmission died on the car or something like that. But generally speaking, we can expect... Bountiful sowing to result in bountiful reaping. Also, I do want to clarify that Paul's not presenting this as some sort of like, get rich quick scheme or suggesting that we should give money in any way that's disconnected from delight in God Himself. That's going to become increasingly uh, apparent as we continue going through this passage. And we also need to be very careful to avoid the error of a movement that's um, commonly known today as the prosperity gospel movement, which teaches us that God guarantees his people material blessings in this life and, and often leads its followers to pursue these material blessings as a central focus of their lives. And that's a problem Because it draws people into pursuing God's blessings above God himself. You know, when I was a kid, I had a best friend whose name was Ryan. And Ryan and I would do all kinds of things around the neighborhood. Riding bikes and building forts and probably getting into a little bit of trouble. Uh, But one of the things we really like to do, at least I really like to do, is play Ryan's Super Nintendo. And I liked it especially because my family was not able to afford uh, any of those kinds of video games. And so that was the only video game access I had. It was his Super Nintendo. And I mean, I could play that thing for hours. So I remember this one day, I go over over to Ryan's house to see if he was home, and his dad opened the door and told me that that Ryan wasn't there. He had gone somewhere with his mother. And so I said, OK, well, could I still come in and play with Ryan's Super Nintendo? <laughs> and uh, I was like, eight or nine, probably. And that was like, um, no. <laughs> it was kind of awkward. And looking back, I realized a little bit more why that was so awkward. Because, well, you don't do that, <laughs> right? You're, like, you're supposed to like hanging out with people because you like them, not because you just want to play with their stuff. And it's the same way with God. He wants us to seek him for who he is, and not just for the blessings he gives. And in all seriousness, that's what makes this prosperity gospel so heinous. Because it essentially leads people into a terrible form of idolatry, in which they delight in God's gifts more than they do in God himself exalting the gifts above the giver. And I'll just say, that's not Christianity. That's pagan idolatry baptized in Christian language. So that's an important caveat. However, let's not allow the abuses and even the outright heresies of the prosperity gospel movement keep us from recognizing the legitimate teachings of this verse regarding material blessings. We can expect bountiful sowing to result in bountiful reaping. Not only of spiritual blessings, but even of material blessings as well. And I'll just say, guys, that that's something that that I've experienced in my own life Um, since... Day one of Becky and I getting married, and I think for also both of us individually, uh, prior to that, uh, we had contributed uh, very generously—a uh, ten percent tithe of our income to whatever church we were a part of, and and uh, actually even considerably beyond a ten percent tithe. And uh, you know, I can say that God has provided for us, and not just provided the bare minimum, but provided abundantly. And obviously we're not living in a mansion or driving a Lamborghini, but God has been so good to us and showing us generosity and abundant provision, even prospering us to a certain degree. And the question sometimes comes up of Christians wondering, how much should I give? Like, am I required to tithe 10% of my income? And if so, uh, you know, do I need to? tithe on the gross income or the net income. And uh, the Bible's answer to that question of how much should we give is, I believe, well, how much do you want to be blessed? That's the answer. How much do you want to be blessed? I believe that's the the thrust of Paul's teaching here in verse 6. Then moving forward in the passage, a second principle that we find is that God loves A cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we already addressed this pretty extensively last week, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it this morning, but I believe it's important for us to remind ourselves that in God's view, the heart behind our giving is everything. God in no way wants us to give out of some sense of guilt or obligation. Instead, as we see here, he wants us to give cheerfully and as an overflow of the joy that we have in Christ. Now, last week we looked at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 too, about the Christians of Macedonia. He wrote that their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You may remember, remember me sharing the, the picture that comes to my mind as I read that verse of um, dropping a few Mentos into a bottle of Diet Coke. As you know and, and probably seen or at least heard of, When you do that, a chemical reaction occurs, causing the mixture to overflow rather forcefully out of the bottle. So the bottle can't contain what's inside of it, and so it all just overflows. And that's the dynamic at work in generous giving as well. Jesus stirs up joy in a person's heart. In the language of this verse, an abundance of joy, or more joy than they can hold inside of them. And that joy then, what does it say? Overflows in the form of generous giving. And going back to verse 7 of our main passage, that's also the dynamic at work in the cheerful giver. The joy of a, the cheerful giver is a joy that comes from Jesus and from receiving His saving grace at conversion, and from experiencing His presence and beholding His glory in our daily lives. That's what fills us with the joy that should motivate our giving. So practically speaking, as we think about how much we should give, not just during this season of giving, but just in general, in our lives, there's a balance between Challenging ourselves to give with greater generosity, and yet also limiting ourselves to what we're able to give with joy. Moving forward, the third principle is that God promises to provide for the needs of those who give. God promises to provide for the needs of those who give. Look at verses 8 through 10. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he, that is the human giver, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He, this is God now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Focusing first on verse 8, the key phrase for us to notice is all sufficiency. If we give generously, God will make sure that we have, as Paul says, all sufficiency in all things at all times. With the result that we'll be able to abound in every good work. In other words, God will supply to generous givers ample material provision so that they'll have the capacity to do even more of the good works that they've already been doing. We then read in verse 10 that he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So notice how God will not only supply your seed for sowing, but will also multiply that seed. You see that? God supplies the seed in the form of the initial financial blessings he gives us, then we sow that seed in the form of generous giving. And then as we harvest what we've sown, God multiplies the seed so that we can have even more to sow the next time. So it's a wonderful cycle. The more seed we sow, the more of a harvest we'll reap. And the more harvest we reap, the more seed we have to sow again. The idea is that our capacity for generosity grows greater and greater and greater, as does the joy that we experience in generous giving. So the point is that if we give generously, we can be confident that God will meet our needs. In the language of verse 8, he'll give us all sufficiency. And in the language of verse 10, he'll supply that seed. So let me encourage you not to let anxiety about the future keep you from being generous in the present. Of course, there's nothing wrong with preparing for the future. Proverbs 6, for example, talks about the ant storing up its food in preparation for the winter. That's a good thing. However, there's a difference between... Storing up enough food for one winter and storing up enough food for 10 winters. Um, As one pastor uh, that I heard used to say, there's a difference between saving for a rainy day and saving for a rainy decade. So don't let anxiety about the future drive your life and keep you from the level of generosity that God may be calling you to in the present. Remember also what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 26 through 30. He tells us, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus then concludes with this promise in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. (coughs) Excuse me. So both in Matthew 6 and in 2 Corinthians 9, God promises to provide for the needs of those who give. Then finally, we find the last principle here, which is that God entrusts us with wealth so that we can give it away. God entrusts us with wealth so that We can give it away. We already saw this uh, principle to some degree in verses 8 through 10, but we see it even more clearly in verse 11. Paul writes, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Think about the significance of that word to in the verse. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. The two indicates the purpose of the enrichment. God doesn't just enrich us for no reason at all, but rather has a specific purpose in mind. It's kind of like in our family, uh, when some of our relatives will send our children uh, birthday cards on their birthday. Uh, A lot of times there will be money inside, and, and most of the time that money would be in the form of cash. But we do have one relative who likes to send a check uh, to our kids. And, of course, that check isn't made out to the children. They don't have bank accounts. So it's made out to Becky and I. And yet, even though the check is written out to Becky and I, it's very clear that it's intended for the kids, right? Like, it would be a pretty embarrassing breach of trust for us to, like, take that check and use it on something for ourselves, right? So that money is, is... Directed to us, technically, but it's not ultimately intended for us. It's just intended to sort of pass through our bank account. Similarly, according to this verse, we'll be enriched in every way for a purpose. So that we can be generous in every way. So the reason God entrusts us with these various material uh, blessings... Isn't so we can hoard all those blessings for ourselves, but rather so we can use those blessings to be generous. We are blessed to be a blessing. That's the expectation. And this goes back to the idea that all of our money actually belongs to God. Ultimately, it isn't really our money, but rather God's money that he's temporarily entrusted to us with the expectation that we'll use it for his glory and according to his instructions. The term that's often used to communicate this is stewardship. We're not owners of wealth, but simply stewards who are charged with using God's money in accordance with God's will. It's kind of like when you maybe entrust uh, money to a financial advisor, right? That advisor isn't just free to do whatever they want with the money. Like if that advisor took your money and used it for themselves, like went on some cruise in the Caribbean or something like that, that's not cool, right? That kind of thing's generally frowned upon, Uh, maybe even resulting in the financial advisor doing jail time for pulling a stunt like that. Because that money, humanly speaking at least, belongs to you, not them, and therefore needed to be used according to your instructions. Similarly, the Bible's clear that God owns every penny that we possess. As Psalm 24, 1 and 2 states, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world." And those who dwell herein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Friends, we don't own anything, it all belongs to God. So let's just acknowledge that this is a major paradigm shift, even for many Christians. And the implication for our giving is that we're not just called to be maybe slightly more generous than we may have been in the past, but rather that our entire mentality toward giving needs to be radically altered because it rests on the wrong premise. You know, if you start with the wrong premise, you're almost certainly going to arrive at the wrong conclusion. Kind of like if you're in the woods, let's say, and trying to, you're lost in the woods and trying to use a map to find your way out, but you are mistaken about where you're presently located on that map. If that's the case, you're probably not going to get out of the woods anytime soon. Starting with the wrong premise results in just about everything you do after that being in error. Similarly, if you start with a misguided premise that you own the money you possess, it's really going to mess you up when it comes to handling that money in a way that glorifies God. And so the question we should be asking isn't how much of my money do I want to give to God, but rather how can I best steward God's money in a way that pleases him? As we see back in verse 11, a key reason why God entrusts us with wealth is so that we can give it away. And so, hopefully, these four principles are helpful for you. Yet, if we're going to approach what God's entrusted to us in a way that pleases Him, we ultimately need more than just principles. We need A person. These principles actually won't do us any good unless our hearts are captivated by a person. Namely, the person of Jesus. And that really comes out in verses 12 through 15. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints in Jerusalem but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. And here it is. That comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Notice two things in these verses. First, in verse 13, Paul talks about your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So the source of our submission in the form of generous giving is ultimately tied up in the gospel. Through our generous giving, we prove the genuineness of our confession, and therefore by implication that we have in fact embraced the gospel for salvation. So that means, it simply, it just means that generosity isn't supposed to be something that we whip up in our hearts, but rather something that comes from the supernatural change of heart that we experience at conversion when we embrace the gospel. And the gospel here refers to who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross to rescue us. The Bible is very clear that Jesus died on the cross in order to pay the price for our sin. That our sins deserved, even demanded, God's judgment. Jesus stepped in and He took that judgment on Himself when He died on the cross. And because of what He's done on the cross, and and because of His subsequent resurrection, you and I, as we put our trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins. And also made into a new person, with a new heart, when we... Put our trust in Him. And and it's then, out of that new heart, that we're called to be generous. Don't put the cart before the horse, right? The new heart first. And out of that, the generosity. And I love how Paul concludes the chapter in verse 15, where he writes, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. That gift, of course, is the gift of God's Son. Think about that. His own Son. God hasn't just given us gifts that don't really matter that much to Him. He's given us His own Son, Jesus, to be our Savior and Redeemer. And it's this Generosity that God's shown toward us that should lead us in turn to be generous toward others.